from Finding Freedom by Tate Heidel. From a young, innocent age, we are learning to walk in this world. We stumble and fall, yet our hearts long to run and one day fly in this thing called freedom. We were made for it. We were built for it. But pain comes along and insists on being attended to. We can't ignore it, although sometimes we try, pushing on and pushing our hearts harder and eventually breaking it even more, causing even more pain, creating a heaviness. The weight may not be a physical weight that you can see on a scale, but this weight keeps more people from getting up and living the lives that they are made to have than any physical weight. It keeps us in bed in the mornings, not wanting to get up. It prevents us from talking to once dear friends and making those relationships that once felt like home, full of life, now feel empty. And oh, how heavy is that emptiness? Can you relate? We start asking ourselves things like, how can my heart ever run when I feel like I can't even walk or some days get up? We can physically walk through the day, but yet our hearts still lying in our chest, numb, longing just to get up. We say to our hearts, give it time, you'll heal. But scars of numbness form over the cuts. Other times we try to find things to help restore life and fill the emptiness. And other times we find ways to substitute physical, physically feeling alive with activities, substances, and relationships to cover it most of the time, unknowingly. Think of the things you love. What things do you connect with deeply? What things keep you up at night or drive you day to day? Isn't it strange that the things and relationships that we are closest to also bring the most pain? Pain doesn't come from when someone you don't know in New York has a loved one that dies. Pain comes from the things that we are close to, that we hold on to. How do we then get rid of or prevent pain if the things we connect with most hurt us the most? Is that possible? These things I have often wondered. It is one thing I keep being brought back to because again, pain insists on being attended to. But there's a light in the midst of all of this. And how beautiful is that light? And the way to see it is to become again like a child. Damn, that's powerful. Thank you so much, Tate, for sharing that with us. For those of you, the listeners who have not gone and read Tate's blog, I highly suggest you do that. Just go right to his uh, Instagram, and it should be right there in his bio. So thank you very much for sharing. And to our listeners, welcome back to the Rootkit Podcast. It has been a while. It has definitely been a hot minute. Yeah, lots of life going on, um, but that's why, you know, Really quickly, before we get started, we'll just do some uh, life updates. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's been about, what, two months since our last podcast? Lots of life yeah. going on. Something just like that. about. Yeah. So, yeah, you and I, uh, we went, we were out of town for a conference, you know, a couple, or about a month ago now. Mm-hmm. And we come back, then I have to go to New York. I think it's actually kind of funny, um, you know, you're like, you know, most people don't care if like someone you don't know has a loved one in New York that dies. Well, mm-hmm. that's actually exactly what happened to uh, uh, exactly exactly what happened to me. You know, my grandmother yep. passed away um, last month. For those of you who don't know, um, 
and you know it ended up you know she was she was pretty ready to go um and you know even though the the circumstances were terrible you know in terms of seeing family um in terms of just being around them and being around everybody it was honestly really beautiful just hearing all the different stories and everything else so i was up in new york for about a week then i come back immediately you know tate's sick with whatever then i get sick and then <laughs> his schedule changes my schedule changes everything's all over the place so yeah that's where that's where we're at right now but we have been doing uh some things in the meantime uh we've been doing been building some websites and uh doing some logos including one for my really good friend um christian harry who owns ch mobile auto detail now i highly recommend y'all go and uh, check him out uh, he does both interior and exterior car detailing uh, cars of all ages he shined up my new truck it's not really new. It's an old truck, but he made it look like new. So <laughs> he did a great job. Uh, if you live in the DFW, the College Station, or Austin area, go to chmobileautodetail.com and contact him and see if uh, see if he can uh, make your ride nice and clean. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyways, the title of today's podcast is Veritum. We're going to be discussing truth today, and this is a pretty loaded topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much in our day and age. This is uh, it almost seems like a, a, a touchy subject, but it's one of those that we felt like we really needed to go, especially after vulnerability. Our last podcast, it's like a perfect transition because it's so needed for growth in our lives. So, yeah, and not only that, but um, you know, especially like right now, it's very hard to know what in fact is true. You know, with mm-hmm. uh, you know just. You, you can see how polarizing everything is just because the information that people are getting is so different and it's 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 not healthy for a society that's for sure um, but we're going to be discussing that um, so let's discuss why we're calling it veritum let's first start out with the definition of truth though the tr- uh, the definition of truth is the quality or state of being true or in accordance with fact or reality now, veritum is actually a relationship with truth. Now, this is something that you actually decide because veritum actually means respected and revered and feared or dreaded. So it's both of those things simultaneously and you, the individual, actually have the capacity to choose how you perceive truth or what is veritum. Mm-hmm. So. You know, actually, on a side note, um, just for like a parallel for those that are curious on the the way that veritum is relatable to truth is that the the story that I shared this last time with me and my mom, um, where we were, uh, where my mom came to me with the book and I came with the truth that my mom brought to me, I actually saw truth from that that latter part of the definition in in, in fear. Um, just because it was one of those where I had to take an honest look at myself um, of just, is this really true that I was an angry kid, that that I was always frustrated, I was always trying to control the life that was around me, whether it was my siblings or whatever it was, is that, and again, truth is not always something that we're going to see and be like, oh, this is a great thing, that yeah. <laughs> a lot of times truth sometimes is like, oh, it's revealing it in ways, yeah. It hurts, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so basically we have to learn how to overcome this fear and this dread of truth and actually be willing to take ourselves out of the situation and put our mm -hmm. feelings, you know, our thoughts, feelings aside and actually look at it at least from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can understand that you have different biases and you can recognize that, but you always need to look at the world through different lenses. And this is actually something I've been a huge advocate for um, in terms of just reading things that have a diversity of thought. Don't only read things that you agree with. So like, for example, you know, a couple books that I'm reading right now, I'm, I'm reading, uh, you know, I just recently read like White Privilege by um, uh, Robin DiAngelo but I'm also reading White Guilt by Shelby Steele. Now, if you know either of those people, they have completely polar opposite viewpoints, but it's under it's it's really important to understand both sides because there are there are bits and pieces of truth in both. And you can actually find these things and then see where they overlap. And a lot of times mm -hmm. you are whenever you're able to see where uh, these things overlap, you're actually able to do this thing called communication which comes from the word communion, which Tate, you were talking to me about earlier, which means yeah. to make common. So why don't you talk about that for just a second? Yeah, no, it was interesting because I had a conversation actually with a, a friend of mine. And uh, as of now, actually, it's a, now a boss. Um, but he was just talking about just the importance of communication. And he had a professor in college just talking about um, how they were constructing, instead of doing um, digital design, uh, they started uh, calling it um, uh, digital communications. Um, and so it's one of those where he defined it as communication to make common. So even just having, um, whether that's two ideas, two separate ideas, or even two same ideas come together in a place to where those, not just the ideas are shared, but mm -hmm. to make the like the communication or to commune with these sides to make known whether that's a point of view or a reality behind something and the other person able to receive it. So if like communication, if communication just creates more brick walls between the two, it actually uh, defeats its purpose of what communication and communion is meant to do. And uh, I know people have, again, we, we hear communion and we think of like little red juice cups and, and uh, <laughs> little pieces of bread at church that we would have. But again, that concept of to take communion or uh, communication is to make a common ground of a reality and um, not just to, for it as like, oh, I now get your idea, but to truly empathize and to be able to see from another person's eyes or to see an idea uh, in a totally different way is that communication that is what it's meant to be used for is to be able to not just make ideas be known but for to make the the recipient able to receive said mm -hmm. idea or concept and for you to be able to receive it it's in a, another way that you kind of painted a picture for me which i thought was amazing um was that just imagine like let's take the political divide here in the united states right You've got one person on one side of the canyon, and you've got another person on the other side of uh, uh, on the other side of the canyon, and they're just screaming to each other about what they see on the other side, but refusing to look, you know, on their own sides. For example, right? Mm -hmm. So they're right about each other to a certain extent, 
and they're also right about like where they're at to a certain extent as well. Hmm. But this idea of making common actually creates a bridge in which these two people can come together and have some sort of relationship right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then trust can be built to where, you know, you can actually go back and forth from one side to the other and see what sides, like what things actually are true and what things are not and what need fixing and whatnot. And this is true on both hmm. sides. And so, um, you know, I thought that that was a great way of, uh, of putting it. Yeah, so, no, I never thought of it like that before. Again, it, it, it almost, you feel like there's a chasm, but communication is supposed to be the bridge between the canyon. Right, yeah. And then once you have that bridge and you have that trust and communication, you can go, you know, one side of the canyon, fix things, then the other side of the canyon and fix things because you have hmm. a bridge to do that. But without that bridge, you know, uh, you, you're probably not going to fix things on either side and you'll just be yelling at each other <laughs> from opposite sides, which is not helpful whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's so, a good place to start, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of the times what that takes is you actually, you know, being vulnerable and um, laying down, you like, the feelings and thoughts that you have associated with what you, what you thought to be true initially mm-hmm. and actually allowing room for the possibility of you being wrong and being more accepting to that person. Because if you're more accepting mm-hmm. to this person then they're more likely to be more accepting of you. And this is something we all struggle with. Believe me, I've been on Twitter since the election. It's not been pretty. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you can't always logic and reason everything out of, uh, like, you know, out of anyone. There's a reason why Bill Gates wrote a book called How to Lie with Statistics. It's because statistics and, um, you know, factual evidence does not always render doesn't always render truth you can you can actually manipulate these things to bring back um the result that you want Mm -hmm. and that's a a, you could honestly make that a subject of its own to be honest honestly yeah (laughs) so um a couple questions we'll be addressing today um what is truth we've kind of tapped in tapped on that a little bit how can i find it are there different types how can i contextualize it and then we're also going to be talking about different types of truth. We're going to be talking about subjective truth, objective truth, individual truth, group truth, and absolute truth. Now, it's, un- it's really important to understand all the different levels to these things because if you understand it on multiple levels, um, then you're actually able to m- move in a way that addresses each level of truth simultaneously and like whenever... Uh, the way that I like to put it is that whenever, whenever truth, whenever something is true on every single different level, then that becomes something that you can actually, you know, use as a foundation to move forward in. Usually, mm-hmm. not always, but usually. So, anyways, yeah. let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about um, the next part of your story. Um, you using truth after being vulnerable to move forward. Yeah. So actually, I thought that was very interesting as even like when writing um, my said thing at the beginning, um, I, I, I don't think it's coincidence, but I think it's, it really is almost fitting in a way that the person that I would be doing my podcast with 
literally had what I was describing as a pain that I, I wouldn't be feeling or since from my perspective, again, I wouldn't have pain in, but you on the other hand experienced that very fully. And so, I don't know, I thought that was, I don't think that was a coincidence, but I think that makes this story um, even more potent. Um, it was mm-hmm. where I wrote that um, intro from, um, as I was actually sick with both Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and West Nile in 2015. Um, and so it was a long process. For about 18 months, I was sleeping on average between like 16 and 20 hours a day, depending on um, where I was at in the middle of that uh, whole recovery process. And so what's interesting is that, um, again, the I other had... eight hours were hard work, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, even like my days that, I, that were technically quote-unquote productive were... Like, uh, just getting up and communicating with, um, again, I moved back into my parents' place and, again, just sitting and communicating and, and uh, chatting with them and then maybe taking a walk. And um, whether that was reading for a little bit, I definitely did that too. It's just interesting is that those things took way more of a toll um, than I thought. And so I would do that for a couple hours a day and then I would just be toast. Um, and so... From that point, it was interesting because I wrote this about a year, year and a half in. Um, just me contemplating, just I had a lot of pain going on in my heart. Um, and I had no idea where it was coming from at first. And uh, previously, right before me getting sick, uh, that summer prior, I was um, a logistics manager for a coffee company where we were serving coffee at concert festivals all around the nation. And I was incredibly physically fit um, as like an athlete and being able to do uh, running and basketball on a very, um, very athletic uh, table. And then I also had a relationship that I had that was very dear to my heart, um, that, that it was beautiful. And then it kind of collapsed that right before the whole tour happened. And so there's, there's an interesting thing is that all the things that I thought made a man great to do and to what I valued as what makes a good man, um, all kind of fell from my fingertips in just a matter of seconds, it felt like. And so it was interesting as I was conflicted with, um, again, trying to, again, heal and move forward from it. And I found myself in a place of pain and in, and in just sorrow for a while. And Before you move on too, too much, um, yeah. I'd just like to ask you a question about that. All right. So um, these things, you know, the relationship and being physically strong and everything else, um, would you agree that those are things that are the byproduct of being a good man? But if you substitute being a good man with those things, that that in and of itself is actually relatively unhealthy. And would you say that that's actually the position that you were in at that time? Oh, yeah. No, you literally were moving in uh, right to where I was going next is that, again, I, I kind of put it as, again, flip those two, is that what my heart longed for was that if I did these things, what I did then made me a good man mm-hmm. instead of the other way around of if these are in my heart and then they become evidences of it. But I'm first rooted in knowing who I am as a human and as a man is that um, the, the first that if I found my identity in what I did, I became in turmoil, like how I was for a while, that, again, I found my identity in all the things that I did. Mm-hmm. But if on the latter side of it, if I found my foundation of who I was in 
um, again, not just as personal belief, but even just how God sees me and even just how, um, again, who I am and the nature of, of being in his image and also then moving forward in that and then everything else becomes the fruits of that, then it doesn't matter what I do, even if it's rough times or if it's in rough circumstances, then it becomes out, anything out of joy, anything out of, out of growing, anything out of, um, again, just, just the beautiful things of anticipation of life that you can cultivate and grow in. And that was definitely not built beforehand. And so it was interesting is that that kind of got uprooted in my heart where I was seeing myself every, again, the only way that I was seeing my value was through what I did. And I realized that I actually couldn't live with that foundation for the rest of my life. It could, it could look good for a while, but I could be living then in turmoil for the rest of my life if I wasn't doing those things. Right. So yeah, no, that's, that's great. So whenever, um, whenever you changed basically the foundation of your life and how you were looking at, how you were looking at it, how did it change like you as a person in terms of what you like how you perceived not only your own circumstances but the world as well yeah it was interesting as i thought at first is that the the world seemed like obstacles to get over and it was not like in a good way it was like there were rocks that were always going to be there to bump my knee and scar me and places i could fall over and um it was they're more like excuses not to get up and walk every morning and and get up and so even just kind of how I talked about it is that I felt like I, it was worth not getting up every day because I was just I was just gonna feel like I was gonna be in more pain the next day that I, I got up and moved forward, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, from the growing and seeing things more in a a a light's perspective of truth, I would say is that it became the world then started looking more like a playground. Even though that you can, again, there will be times of pain, there'll be times of hurting yourself or breaking a bone if you're trying something new that, new and scary that but looks really fun is that you start seeing the world then like a playground again to try new things, to grow, to, hey, let's do this, let's try this out. And not instead of seeing it as, oh, this is a place that's going to hurt me, is you then start looking through the world through a lens of, um, again, opportunity and growth again yeah and this goes perfectly into um you know we're going to be talking about um both subconscious and conscious behavior but also the underlying (laughs) you know thing of perception Mm -hmm. so what most people don't realize is that most of us live a day-to-day life like relatively subconsciously like I think it's something along the lines of 90% of the decisions that we make on a daily from going on a drive to, you know, going to work. And it's just a routine that we have ingrained in our mind. Um, So it's literally just perception followed by an action with very little to no thought, you know, in between. Uh, It's -hmm. it's autonomous. And this is actually something that's really, really cool about the human body. So um, one of the things that we have to work on, you know, particularly with, baseball you know for me or trumpet which i actually did it much better at trumpet don't ask me why but maybe it's because (laughs) my dad's trumpet player but that's besides the point but um you know and you can actually apply this to every other aspect of your life is actually bringing what is happening subconsciously to consciousness 
Mm-hmm. That way, this the conscious can become subconscious. And so in terms of your whole idea of basing your reality on these things that you thought made you a good man, well, whenever you actually changed and brought the things that actually make you a good man to your consciousness, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure you'll get into here in just a second. So mm-hmm. whenever you did that and you actually worked on those things, the more you did that and the more you repeated those those thoughts, feelings, behaviors, you know, the more that they become ingrained into who you are and actually then, again, become subconscious and actually become, you know, more or less your identity. So what did that process look like? Because I know, you know, at the end of the day, we're all working on it, but what did mm-hmm. that process of bringing these thoughts, feelings uh, that were subconscious, changing them, bringing them to the conscious so that they could, again, you know, start become subconscious again? It was, uh, it started with, again, a good way to, to think about it is whenever you have thoughts in your head that just seem off or that seem really pessimistic or seem really degrading is to take those thoughts captive, not just the bad ones, but even the good ones. Just take those thoughts captive because, um, a lot of times they think they, they seem subconscious, like they're always running no matter what. Mm-hmm. But realizing that I can actually change not just the, that thought, but where that thought comes from. And so the best way to describe it is that I would perceive something. And that was me through, uh, I would perceive my day. It started out where I would see that, oh, I was not going to do what I wanted to do. And for that day, it could have been just go to church and see some friends. And mm-hmm. I didn't do it. And so I felt guilty. And then I started, what I would start doing is taking that thought is that instead of that, that perception leading into guilty action is that I would take that thought and like, where does this coming from? And taking that before myself and saying, is this really, is this true? Is this, is this guilt that's going to start coming? Where is this coming from? Why am I having this thought in the first place? And so what that does is then it helps me take a look at my perception of our, how I'm seeing the situation in front of me. And so even like um, a lot of where my guilt and shame was coming from was again, like how I said prior was, again, if I didn't do it, then I was a bad man. And mm-hmm. realizing that maybe that isn't true about me. Um, maybe this is just a time in a season that I'm going to have to be okay with not doing a lot. And so right. then I started looking through my world through that lens and saying, all right, it's okay if I don't do all these things. I am not in a place to do all these things right right now. Is that it's okay. And so I started seeing myself, all right, I, I'm now at a place of rehabilitation. That is actually an adventure to start doing more again. Even if I can't do um, exponentially more in a short period of time, to look forward to doing one thing more at a time. Right. And so it became more of an anticipation of growing one day at a time, which made me start looking forward to, um, again, when I did feel like I can do, uh, like get together with friends or to be able to hang out with somebody, um, on top of being able to do one thing earlier in the day, like that Mm -hmm. was a huge thing for me for a while was just, again, just one more thing to do during the day instead of just being at home, reading, having a conversation and that being it is that I can start looking forward to those little things again. And, and so this, it was. It started with taking those thoughts of um, of how I was perceiving things captive in my mind, mm-hmm. and this coincides perfectly. Like um, you know, 
with me playing trumpet. For example, you know, anytime that I pick up a new piece of music that's hard, or maybe I'm preparing for, you know, an audition or mm -hmm. a, a recital or whatever else, and I pick up a brand new piece of music, I'm not going to be able to just perform it outright, you know, from the get-go. There are some people who have done it, but they've practiced it for so long. So as someone who's like, you know, a relatively intermediate player, I would sit down and I would have to break down the piece very fundamentally, like just in terms of notes, rhythms, and just play it very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. And so this is bringing, you know, this is bringing attention to all of the very tiny details of the piece and how it's all put together. Uh, then as I become comfortable with that, then you ha then I would, um, you know, play a little bit larger chunks. And as I started to play larger chunks, I would speed up the tempo a little bit. And mm -hmm. as I sped up the tempo a little bit, I would add little, like, you know, flourishes, and I'd add dynamics, and I'd add expression and everything else. And so as you're doing this and putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, the less you're actually thinking about the individual notes and rhythms. And then eventually it gets to the point where it's so ingrained in your muscle memory that you you go and perform and you don't even really have to think about anything because you've done it so many times that it just does that you literally just put yourself in this mindset and it happens naturally. Yeah. And you can literally do this with almost any part of your life. And this is why, you know, there are some people, I don't know if you've noticed, but I know uh, for me, it's my dad, but for whatever reason, whenever crisis strikes or something terrible happens, like there's always that one person that is literally like the rock. And that you can go to no matter what, no matter what situation, like just very strong um, and knows exactly, you know, what to do, thinks quickly on their feet and makes mm -hmm. split second decisions that you're like, how in the world? But it's because they have, you know, either been through those circumstances growing up uh, or whatever else they have learned from the people that came before them, this sort of way of thinking and everything else that literally, you know, attracts people in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that was something that I got to experience with my dad, and that is something, you know, uh, very special and close to me and actually, you know, brought us a lot closer together was going through, you know, one of these times uh, together. And actually it was the whole family, brought the whole family mm -hmm. together. So, um, yeah, and this applies to baseball too. I was not as good at it with baseball because I'm very much a thinker. Uh, oftentimes an overthinker and <laughs> thinking and hitting do not go together. So I'll, I'll pretty, I'll pretty much leave it at that. So, um, in terms of this, uh, subconscious versus conscious, you know, most people think that you have a perception, a thought about the perception of an action, but generally speaking, this is not true. You, I mean, people do say, you know, think before you act and you know, there's a reason why it's because the majority of the time you don't because you have feelings and you have, these thoughts that come rushing to you that you often don't filter before, you know, considering an action. Now, some of us learn how to do that, but not everyone. Mm -hmm. But uh, what a lot of people also don't realize is that there's actually something that underlies perception. There's something that goes even a little bit deeper than that, and it's called an ethic. And now what an ethic is, is the best way that I know how to describe it. It's kind of like whenever you look at a chair, you don't see a chair. You see a place to sit down. Whenever you see a couch, you don't see a couch, you see a place to lay down or, you know, whatever else. Whenever you see a table, you don't see a table, you see a place to eat. You see the, you see the world around you in terms of 
util like utilities and objects essentially. Mm-hmm. So another good way of describing this is let's say you know an object is out of place. Let's say for whatever reason your your girlfriend or your wife is cleaning, you know, at home and she puts the chair like puts a big chair in front of the door so that she can vacuum like in in, in front of the front door. Whenever you open up the door, you're not going to see the chair as a place to sit down. You're going to see it as an obstacle, and you're going to get annoyed. So, the ethic is actually what is determining your perception in that instance. Mm -hmm. And this is really important to note, because if you are not aware of the ethic that is underlying your perception, then you will be forever um, a slave to your perceptions and forever having to think about the perception in order to change your actions which is mm-hmm. a very laborious process. So again, you know, this goes this this goes back into breaking things down into their like what they are fundamentally and then building it back up to where you are understand it other than understand it on multiple different levels. This is where you get to the you know, the different levels of truth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, an ultimate ethic because there's even something that underlies an ethic. And this is literally something that, you know, people have been debating, you know, since life has existed <laughs> is, you know, what is the ultimate ethic or what is an axiom? Because an axiom, you know, we're going to describe that as a symbol of absolute truth. It may not be absolute truth, which is why we're going to describe it as a symbol that points to, proves it, or justifies it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So. Anyways, do you have any, uh, before we move on, uh, get too deep into this, uh, do you have any thoughts over, um, you know, yeah, ethics, I mean, perceptions, thoughts, actions? Yeah, like, a, a good way to, like, describe it for people that are having a hard time putting, um, put it either, like, into a word picture or to more something that's just, instead of just it just being a thought, but actually be able to see it, is, like, just like with, like, baseball or, like, a trumpet, like how he was describing earlier, or even, like, in my life of me trying to grow and move forward is that there are structures in which we've we've seen life and that like just with building a repetition pattern with like baseball or music is that you learn first the fundamentals of things and you create a structure around it Mm -hmm. um and what that is like it's like muscles for swinging in a bat or like music on a trumpet but what it turns into and why this is so important of not just holding on to the structures of things is that there's like improvisation that can happen and even just like improvisation you can see that as like you know jazz music is like you can have like a structured chord that you're all playing in but -hmm. the beautiful part of some jazz music is that it's not scripted is that people know the structure so well or they're the 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 perceptions of what's going on is they can yeah. see the whole picture and they then they can move frame. freely. Yeah. yeah. They can move freely in that picture. And so like with jazz music is that it most of the time is not scripted is that people will play in that chord, whatever they feel like in the moment. And so that's the beauty part is if, if you can see a structure healthily is you can actually move in it in a very free like manner or in, right. in move through the chords and freedom. And so that's a, that's kind of what we're trying to get at with this is that, you know, like with our own perceptions and our own ethics that we're holding on to, so again, subconsciously, and a lot of times that we don't know, 
is that we want to see those things more clearly in a way that can help us see whether we want to see if there's like a wrong note in this chord that's making things jive incorrectly in our lives or it's like we're swinging the bat and we're always missing a, mm-hmm. a specific place the ball's going and we have no idea why we can't hit that stupid thing. Mm-hmm. And so we're lo- trying to look at um, the structures that we have in place to see if maybe we can move them around a little bit. Maybe we can. Maybe, maybe it's unhealthy in this way so we can move it and then be able to swing again strengthen those muscles again in that repetition so then we can move freely in them again in a much healthier way right and i think a good way um that this can be described as is like you know whenever you attach yourself to a structure you you know a lot of times our perception is that we are bound by it and here's here here's the thing that we all have to understand is that life and being itself by definition is constrained you're constrained (laughs) by time space and matter you don't have a choice whether or not to be constrained because you know in order for being to be at all it has to be limited and so that's something that we have to get through our heads so what does that mean it means that if we want to live freely it means that we it doesn't mean wandering aimlessly because if we wander aimlessly and we have no goals or anything to set you know our our foundations around if we have no foundation to start building our structure it's kind of like oh well i want to place a brick here i want to place a brick there i want to place a brick <laughs> here um i just want to you know i just want to throw all the bricks see where they land and hope for the best there's no structure to that Instead, you actually have to plan out, you know, this structure of life and actually place with purpose, you know, each of these building blocks in a way that actually creates something, you know, (laughs) something useful, right? You know, I was just thinking about this, Um, you know, like one of the the simplest ways that I can think about this is gravity, is that, again, Earth has a structure and the way that gravity works. Mm-hmm. And is that we're all constrained by this thing called gravity. And we can, again, walk because of it. We can jump around, play, and we can also then fall. But if we mm-hmm. totally ignore the fact that gravity works and we say, I'm not going to believe in this thing called gravity. And we just think we can walk off a cliff and it's not going to do anything to us. That's actually going to hurt us. So that's actually where then pain would come from is sometimes not being able to move and see that said thing gravity correctly and just because we're going to ignore it or doesn't be- if we don't believe it's there it's actually going to hurt us mm-hmm. and it's not that gravity's hurting us we're actually hurting ourselves the way that we see gravity actually then influences um, our experience with it which mm-hmm. that's kind of an interesting way to think about it and specifically in the the way to freedom is that we see flight and specifically we've looked at the birds for again since like the early early writings that we can come across is that there's been a fascination with this creature called the bird because it can fly and looks like it's breaking the rules of gravity and we can't for the longest time we couldn't figure out why why are we humans again why does the rest of the earth have to move around and obey gravity's laws in a way where we're stuck on earth but they can be out in the air flying and then we realized and one of the cool things about human innovation is that all right 
we were able to see that and we're like, all right, we're going to learn how not just gravity works, but how air and how, um, again, we learned that, again, having air underneath the wing can actually push you up. And so then we actually were able to build then machines to fly. And so what happened is we didn't break the rules of gravity. We just learned how to, we just learned the rules of gravity to be able to walk freely or fly freely in it, I should more like say. And so it's interesting is that that actually can be such a parallel for our hearts is that we all are learning to walk in this world, again, underneath gravity. But again, our hearts really learn, like, and they want to fly and not feel constrained by the world that we live in. And so it's almost like now we're trying to learn how reality works and not just like a simple point with gravity, but we're trying to learn how like the laws of our heart function. And so not just so that we can just walk really well or again, walk without falling, but we really want to learn to run and fly in our hearts and not feel like we're constrained by the world that's around us. Yeah, that's a great way. That's a great way of putting it. And, you know, that actually goes in perfect to kind of like our next kind of idea, which is, you know, in terms of an axiom, right? You can't change the fact that there's gravity on Earth, Mm -hmm. you know? There's a lot of things in your circumstances in life that you cannot change, Mm -hmm. right? But even despite those circumstances, even despite everything else going on, there are ways that you can either overcome it or... Um, you know, better yet, accept it, you know, kind of, I almost think of like salivating over it and, <laughs> yeah. and just allowing it and, and actually like partaking in it and allowing it to change you as a person. And so this is actually something that we've actually kind of lost touch of because this is, mm-hmm. you know, a very, very ancient idea is that all of the good things in life actually come out of the things that we perceive as bad. Mm-hmm. But a, the vast majority of our wisdom has come from, you know, bad things, you know, happening. Or even like failures. Yeah, or even, yeah, mo- more simply failures. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you, whenever something happens, you can't change it. You can't change the fact that that happened. You know, if someone dies, if someone gets hurt you know you can't change that what you can change is your person is your ethic in terms of how you see it your perception in terms of how you perceive it other than your how you think about it and therefore how you act on it Mm -hmm. it's kind of like you know who do you want to be you know like would you rather be the one crying on someone's shoulder or you know being there to comfort someone and them crying on your shoulder right Mm -hmm. i know it's kind of like it's kind of weird maybe like a little bit of a weird kind of like topic but whenever they whenever you show strength and you have this resolve inside of you and you have an axiom that allows you to you know function freely in this world even despite death or anything else that's going on around you that Mm -hmm. is what it looks like to be free yeah so i mean i love that example that you had of your dad of being able to live in moments of crisis and be able to see the the world in front of you clearly enough to be able to move through it in a way that creates calmness that creates okay i know what i need to do in this moment 
yeah. um, even though I don't feel like doing it or if I'm in pain or if I'm seeing um, I lost someone or if I, I become hurt or somebody else becomes hurt is that you're not shocked by the thing that just happened is that you can actually move in it in a way that can create, um, again, I almost feel like direction and meaning sometimes. Yeah, and it was it was really cool to observe firsthand because um, you know I was filled with like a sense of panic, uh, a sense of anxiety, you know, de- depression, what whatever else have you. But um, just seeing him be very firm and literally me asking him, you know, why it was, you know, that he was so calm such a cool demeanor and act very you know uh, very purposefully and very diligently is like i asked him like you know how are you able to do that like why aren't you like freaking out he's like well what's the point of freaking out i can't change what happened mm-hmm. you know the only thing that i can do is you know deal with the fallout and be there for you your your mom and your brother and everyone else it's like oh yeah no that's actually a good point he's like you know that's that's my role and you know, I'm just because, you know, circumstances changed, that doesn't change my role of who I am. Mm-hmm. It's like, I still have to be here for you guys. So, and so that, you know, made me gain a tre- tremendous respect for him. But like I said, it also created like a much better relationship because then, you know, instead of being competitive towards him, I actually started learning from him and underneath him. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was really cool. You know, and I think that moves kind of in the direction that we're wanting to go is that, again, how then can you move forward and grow in this thing, uh, again, of, of seeing the world around you in a healthier way so you can actually grow and, again, nurture things that create, um, again, your life to be not just more impactful, I would say, but even that it creates a, um, a healthy influence, not just the world around you, but even to your internal world. Right. Um, is that seeing examples around you in real time um, and experience those things is is very important. I think what that does is it also helps us see the world around us differently. And even like the way that your dad had, it was um, in extreme circumstances and being able to see them in a healthy, objective way instead of seeing it through just your emotions or like the way that I like to describe it is like all like your lights in your vehicle flashing saying something's up or like you're so concentrated on (laughs) that your check engine light is is blaring and that you know something's wrong but at the same time that doesn't change the fact that something's wrong by you seeing it is that it's being able to see oh hey there is this thing that's inside me whether that for some people can be worry sometimes that can be frustration or anger or it could be mm-hmm. like guilt for me is that it's like, hey, there's there's something going on in here. And so having someone come along and uh, help show you what what that is in the first place, but also its purpose. And so that's even why I came down here to Texas in the first place is that I had um, uh, someone who I would see as uh, a mentor of mine. Again, he, he came, uh, again, I thought of something he talked about way back when I was a junior in high school in the middle of my sickness. And that's what started this process for me was having someone talk about something that was in front of me in a totally different way, which made me see my circumstances in a totally different life uh, light. And also even like my beliefs in my heart and my capabilities in a totally different way was having someone, again, 
almost like woo me in a way saying, hey, maybe things are actually different in a great way. Um, Even though that things may look tough, what if this is actually a beautiful thing that's in front of you that's happening um, to you and and in you? What if it's actually a beautiful thing of growth and of, um, and what can, not just what can you learn from it, but even just like, what does this mean for, uh, the way that I like to think about it too is like a plant, is that if you have something blocking a plant absorbing water or nutrients is that it has to again grow grow deeper dig its roots deeper into the soil to then be able to keep bringing in the nutrients and so it's almost like an inviting way of say hey dig deep and uh take root in the things that that are of life and so maybe like the winds will come at you or the, the waves of the sea will come at you. But again, take root in the beautiful things of this life and the, the narrative that I think that's another thing, too, is the narratives that are thrown around. I think, again, we're so enthralled by story. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a reason why. Again, there's a great thing for for learning and reading autobiographies and how to's and these different things. But there's something else that happens when we read stories that we just relate to on a very deep level that almost talks to like the ethics and sometimes the, the axioms of our life that sometimes we feel like are, are either um, broken or sometimes that are like the hero things that we see and we're like, oh yeah, I wanna be mm-hmm. that, is that it also cultivates that in our heart to move forward and say, oh, maybe, maybe I'm gonna take hold of this thing and hold on to this hope or uh, this belief that this said person in the story um, has done and so maybe I can do that too and I think that's even uh, another reason why we should even listen to like um, like real time stories of like people actually experiencing and being able to move through things in life that we think are like you know massive mountains mm-hmm. but for some people they're on the other side of it and they've already been there and they're extending a hand saying hey I know how to get here this yep. may seem tough but hey would you want to come along and experience um, even just you being in this broken place, I can be on the, the, a helping hand or a shoulder to lean on during this time. And mm-hmm. that, that does so much to, even for our own journey through the hard times in life, is that it creates um, even like a brotherhood or a intimate growth in relationships. And even like how you had with your dad is it grew your relationship with the person that you went it through with. Indeed. Yeah. And so I think this is a perfect sub, uh, segue into you know, talking about um, and moving through different truths, subjective, mm-hmm. objective, individual, group, and absolute. So whenever you have subjective truth, you know, I like to call it, at least for me, it's like generally speaking, whenever someone is talking to me or whenever, um, you know, I'm researching something, I generally have what I refer to as a bullshit detector. Um, you, may, <laughs> you may call yeah. it whatever you want, but I frequently come across this thing where, you know, this, the, the bullshit detector, it basically violates everything that I at least know or think to be true. And it makes me feel, you know, a certain way towards, um, you know, specific stated facts or arguments, whatever else. So what people need to actually be willing to do is to take a step back and allow that detector to be violated (laughs) and actually see if whatever it is, can be proved objectively. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ways of finding truth. Now, objective truth is something that everyone can agree on and say, look, 
this is true, right? It's like, you know, a lamp, a lamp, a lamp is a lamp, a chair is a chair. Very, very basic stuff is just proving whether or not things are objectively true. Now, this is getting harder in today's day and age because, again, um, you know, I was talking about this earlier, like, you can lie with statistics, you can lie with facts and evidences. But here's the thing, is that whenever people want you to prove something, they don't want you to actually prove it to them. They want you to convince them, which is something entirely different than actually proving it. Because a proof is, I don't know if you remember this in mathematics, but a proof is something like all humans are mortal, Tate is a human, Tate is mortal. That is a proof. Mm-hmm. So that's not, that's objectively true. It's like Tate is going to die someday. Sorry, bro, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's the best way that I can describe it is that this is an objective fact and this is a proof, okay, that everyone can agree on. Mm-hmm. So anything else needs to be looked at and taken with a grain of salt because you can lie with facts and, every, and everything else which is also why I'm a huge advocate, and I know you are as well, in terms of, you know, basing our life and basing, you know, what we know based on lived experiences and communication with other people, but also, you know, expanding our horizons by listening and reading other people as well. Mm-hmm. And from that, you get their individual truths, which you also have to understand have their own axioms, their own ethics, their own perceptions, their own thoughts, their own actions, everything else that shape the world around them. And whenever you do that and you look into these individual truths, you can actually see and you can actually observe these things in other people as well, which is really, really cool, is that you can actually identify what drives them and you can Mm -hmm. identify how they perceive the world and how they think about the world. And this is something that we as a culture kind of need to learn how to do, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. If we're more cognizant of these things, then... I feel like a lot of problems in society might go away. I could be wrong on that, but. (laughs) I think what you're talking about, too, again, it's opening up the doors for empathy. Um, I think another thing, too, that stops us from reaching that point is, like you were saying, is that you have, like, a truth that's in front of you, or, like, whatever you're seeing in front of you, and you think something's true, but if it isn't, like, something inside you is disrupted. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again... A way that I like thinking about, specifically our feelings, even just like I was describing earlier, is you know how they're like lights on the dashboard. Um, mm-hmm. But another way of thinking about your feelings is that, again, people say, "Oh, your feelings lie to you," but again, not in a reality's perspective. But say that feelings actually they never lie, but they tell the truth about you. Right. And, and so it's, it's refle- not about it's, the world. It's like looking in the mirror. It's not it's mm-hmm. if you if you if you place your feelings on the world, you're not going to get anywhere. And if everyone does that, then it's going to be a huge clouded mess. Yeah. Yeah, so no, I 100% agree. Feelings and, are an indicator of something going on inside of you. If you yes. feel violated or if you feel like something happened to you that maybe, you know, uh, was not good or you know whatever else I this does not apply to every circumstance I understand that there are some things that you know out someone outright like you know someone outright hurts you that mm-hmm. is one thing 
Like, yeah, it's like the airbags physical, going physical, off in the car. Physical. You're like, that wasn't you doing anything. That was somebody yeah. hitting you. <laughs> yeah, like physically, right. Yeah. Yeah, but generally speaking, generally speaking, the feelings mm-hmm. that you have towards other people, towards other things, more or uh, like more often than not, unless it's actual like physical, emotional, or whatever else, like mm-hmm. hurt, then it's actually usually a reflection of something that's going on inside your own heart. Yeah, and I think that's, again, going back into what we're hoping to get to and towards, not even just individually, but even like even like what we're kind of mm-hmm. leaning in towards culturally is that creating empathy is that, um, again, people don't really, again, you can relate with each other on like, like simple, like just thoughts of like facts. You can relate, oh yeah, I know this fact, you know this fact too. But what creates a true source of empathy is that just like a broken bone, if I have had a broken bone and if somebody else has had a broken bone in the same spot, they're like, I not only know what that is, but I can, I've felt what you've been through and I know what this is like. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it actually creates a way that those two that have experienced the same thing to be able to see it in a the first know that hey you're not alone just kind of even where we left off this that last podcast even just like being vulnerable or like you had a place of vulnerability in your heart or even physically is that to be able to first relate creates a way like a bonding place or like a place of almost like communication that creates a deeper way to communicate with that other person because they just don't know about this they've actually experienced it right yeah and And firsthand too because Actually, mm-hmm. firsthand experience is like, you know, one of the most important things whenever it comes to actually communicating and relating with one another. Mm-hmm. And so this goes perfectly into group and absolute. So, you know, a group is where there's, you know, a culture of shared axioms or shared, you know, ethics, perceptions and everything else. And have generally mm-hmm. speaking, um, you know, gone through the same things. And so they have the same way of thinking and the same way of living. And this is both. You know, it could be very good and it could be, you know, uh, like very bad. Um, you know, some people, um, which uh, this might offend some people, but, um, you know, it's like if you look at the if you look at the world and you look at the history of the world, I think it's undeniable that some cultures are inherently you know, better and more valid than others. Like, I think that Nazis, for example, should all, like, could, should be condemned in history. And I don't think anyone would disagree with me on that. But you have to recognize that they actually did share a culture. They showed, they shared an axiom. They shared, you know, uh, an ethic, a perception. And then their thoughts and their actions, you know, ended up being very murderous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same thing with Soviet Russia. So, you know, it's, Whenever you look back on, um, you know, these things, uh, you know, subjectively or objectively, depending on, you know, how you define it, there are some cultures that are, you know, more valid, I guess, than others. I don't know if that's a bad way of saying that. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's not like it's like they're more valid, but it's in a way that they... You see them as life. almost like, yeah, again, they have more life, they're more productive, um, 
And it's interesting is that even like I love reading some of the stories of like the people that came from oh, Nazi Germany sure. that were in Nazi Germany is that even like some of the writings that with some of the scholars that were there too, seeing these people had like foresight of seeing where they were going. But yet yeah. the people that were there thought they were doing a good thing until all of a sudden that they realized, mm-hmm. um, again, the, the crazy thing about even Hitler himself, he was an incredible, he, he was able to speak incredibly well where people mm-hmm. would follow him. And that was the one of the most unique things about him as a leader is that he was able to use his communication skills to be able to convey ideas and everybody was behind him and sometimes they didn't get the whole picture and and they, they were vulnerable because of were, their circumstances that they were in at exactly. the time exactly again after world war one of again being where they were at is that they were looking as a country to try to rebuild and to regain to have a healthier economy and these different mm-hmm. things and what had and happened they felt disrespected then, and violated oh, by yeah. the, the treaty of versailles oh my goodness yeah i mean like that like that that country um, man, they went through so much in a short period of time. And so it was so interesting is that they were so ready for, again, getting back on their feet and the way in which that, that the people followed then Hitler into it was it became a very destructive thing. I mean, they, like stepping on other people to get what they needed. And, mm-hmm. and so because of that, I mean, it was a, a tragedy of a thing. But it seemed like everybody's, again, their, the ethic kind of got pulled together, even though that there are some people that saw the that saw the incidences and things that were going on to be like, oh no, like we should actually take a step back, and they were at first seen as like, oh, you're just weird, <laughs> but then on history side, when you take a look back, is that those people had hindsight to be able to see or foresight, I should say, to be able to see how things were going to play out, and like they took a look back at the ethic in which. Um, their them as a nation were going through and be able to see that in a way that we're like hey red flags here and um i don't know it's it's a very interesting especially with culturals and uh, cultures and things like that it's like again we all long to move forward not just mm-hmm. not just businessly or these different things but even as a humanity is that we look we want to grow and keep moving forward and <laughs> it's almost like tribal syndrome i, I like <laughs> to describe is that we get we get so focused on our tribe and how we see the world, and we think, right. okay, to move forward, we have to move like how we think. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with how you think most of the time. And, and actually, a lot of times, those experiences and even just like the vulnerable place that even like Germany went through is that, again, they, they, they were in that place that they longed to get back on their feet. But, um, again, a lot of times that those that have gone through really hard or difficult times don't see freedom they just see getting out of pain mm-hmm. and sometimes those don't produce the same thing as if you're focused on getting out of a problem instead of actually moving into freedom is that those two things can actually be not one in the same and sometimes that's really foggy mm-hmm. and not just personally also, but even culturally yeah and so you know what you're speaking or what you were speaking on you know in terms of nazi germany and you know soviet russia as well as Two books that I highly recommend everyone read. Um, they're both very jarring, um, mm-hmm. but The uh, Ordinary Men and The Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. I don't remember who Ordinary Men was by, but I know that it was um, it was about Nazi Germany and how ordinary men could be driven to do horrendous things in, mm-hmm. in the name of a perceived good. 
And same thing with uh, Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago basically describes how, you know, these people that were in the camps, you know, they were actually, you know, they were for the regime that put them there. And they were like, oh, but, you know, we're just misunderstood. Like, we'll get out. It's okay. In fact, they were like laughing and joking with the guards. But as they, you know, were forced to labor and they kept working, you know, it destroyed them because this thing that they had fought so hard for actually condemned them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so both books I highly recommend. And uh, this actually uh, goes really, uh, really smoothly into our next um which is absolute truth but before we do that um i'd go ahead i'd like to go ahead and recap the questions that we asked at the very beginning Mm -hmm. um answer the questions go over um all of the uh all of the the different ways in which we are like perceive and things and then um yeah then we can move on so have we determined a definition of truth Yes, we have. Um, The definition of truth. You want me to read that again, or go ahead and tell me? uh, Tell me what? um, I mean, you can cite. uh, The definition of truth is, you know, in accordance with fact or reality. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that that is what truth is. But as we've described. You know, they, this can exist on different levels of existence, mm-hmm. essentially, right? So then, you know, how can I find it? I think you answered that pretty well. Um, if you'd like to go ahead and recap that. Yeah, it's a, a lot of times with finding truth is you first have to go out and, again, go discover it. I think that's mm-hmm. a lot of it. it has to do with experiencing, um, experiencing life. I think there's a lot of times that it's, you don't, won't know the truth until... Um, Again, the truth about walking or running until you go out and go do it. You can try to mm-hmm. have right facts about it, but it's not best known until... Like you can read an exercise book all <laughs> day long, and you can know exactly how it works and how by consuming you know, protein and how the muscles break down and build back up, but unless you go out and experience it, you don't know what it's like. Mm-hmm. Again, you can read the, the again, um, how to make coffee for dummies without actually making <laughs> coffee and you may I know everything that, about it yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah so yeah and then are there different types of course there are there's subjective objective individual group and then as we'll go into absolute then how can i contextualize it again you summarize this perfectly you know with your story basically once you you know once you are willing to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and you are willing to go and seek truth you can either let it be respected and revered, or you can let it be feared and dreaded. That is up to you. That is something that is in your own ballpark. Mm-hmm. That is something that you have the power to take it. And you can either hate the truth, or you can respect it, and you can move forward with it. So that's mm-hmm. how you contextualize it. All right, so we're going to talk about absolute truth. But before we do that, I'm going to read you a couple excerpts and give you a um, a bit of a preview of a project that I'm going to be doing here. So, you know, I've been talking to you about diversity of thought. Well, in this little project of mine, I'm going to be going through a couple different books. You know, I mentioned a couple earlier. Um, you know, 
White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo and White Guilt by uh, Shelby Steele. But recently I've been reading Bolshevik Visions, which is um, a bunch of different Soviet philosophers. And I've also been reading um, some uh, Jordan Peterson as well. Now, again, everyone has their opinions about Jordan Peterson, but I, don't, I think that unless you have actually read Jordan Peterson, you are not allowed to have an opinion on him. That is just what I think personally. But, <laughs> anyways, so, should I go ahead? Go for it. Alrighty, and before I read this, I want everyone to kind of think about where we are at in today's society and what society actually looks like. And if you're older and you have kids, talk to your kids about what they're learning in school and what type of things, um, you know, they're hearing. I'm not saying that these are complete parallels by any means, but I'm just saying to kind of keep this in the back of your mind. All right. So from Bolshevik visions, uh, this is part two, um, the first phase of cultural revolution in Soviet Russia. And this is part two, creating Soviet cultural forms, art, architecture, music, film, and the new tasks of education. So this is an excerpt from speech to the first All-Russian Congress on Education by Alexander Lunacharsky. Quote, we wish to liberate the educator and return him to the role for which he is called, a people, not an individual, but a people who will constitute the essence of human justice. For us, that is the task of the ideal school. Unquote. Uh, he quotes Karl Marx a little bit later on. Quote, while science earlier interpreted the world in one way or another, our task is to remake it, unquote. Now, I'm going to be talking about the role of children uh, right here, and these are all quotes as well. So this is uh, excerpts from the Pioneer Movement as a Form of Cultural Work Among the Proletariat by Alexander Zol Zolkind, or Aaron Zolkind, my bad. Quote, the Pioneer Movement had its aim the education of a steadfast revolutionary communist fighter. The way to do this is to create organized collective socio-political work activities for children to do themselves. The proletarian children organizations will become the first in the West, referring to the United States, the first cells for the active development of a comprehensive communist worldview. Proletarian children's groups in the West, again referring to the United States, are now gradually turning into a means of preparing the mature revolutionary class fighters in the interest of the final victory of the world proletariat. The pioneer movement is contemplating a certain type of revolutionary communist whom, is, whom it is actually developing in its work. It is necessary to remove from him his brain the metaphysical, mystical fetishes tied to a child by the bourgeois school and our entire ideological surroundings. The pioneer must develop the materialist in a child. It is necessary to expel the chaotic, egotistical, proprietary elements from the child's consciousness, which have been forced on him by the capitalist proprietary attitudes. The revolutionary communist struggle can be conducted only on the basis of profound development of collective feelings, feelings of responsibility, of love, of urgency, of interclass cooperation. The rules of physical and psychological health, rational habits of everyday life, therefore, will also become a basic precept of the pioneer movement, a fundamental means of developing children into psychologically and physically healthy and ideologically steadfast revolutionary fighters. 
The pioneer children's movement sets as its uh, as in its creation of a healthy children's environment organized on the basis of healthy children's biological urges and on the healthy demands of revolutionary collectivism. Now, for all you parents out there, um, how would you like a society built on your kids' biological urges? <laughs> just, just, a, just a question. Doesn't seem... Seems kind of interesting to me. All right. Children educated in pioneer groups must in the future be, and already are, innovative cells in the family too children enthusiastic uh, enthusiast activists gripped by their collective feelings carry into the musty family life new principles of revolutionary ideology higher cultural standards hygienic literacy which we'll get to in just a second etc etc adults are unknowingly saturated by this constantly penetrating and healthful content and themselves begin to be re-educated hmm. interesting yep it is necessary at all costs to take the organization of a helpful children's environment into strong guiding hands, all the more so since, as we saw above, social uh, social perspectives and biological possibilities exist for this in the USSR, and they have never been granted to humanity in the entire history of its development. So basically what it's saying right here uh, for its children, you know, is that... Um, the state needs to educate the children and by educating the children um, they uh, the children will because they are so malleable and so you know open and so vulnerable uh, of these ideas and everything else is that they 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 find it necessary to actually go and you know basically do the job of the parent instead of allowing the parents to do the job for the children, which some would consider dangerous, others maybe not. <laughs> now, um, in terms of like university students, quote, uh, this is from uh, Students in the Counter-Revolution, also by Alexander Lunacharsky. Universities were always laboratories for the manufacturer of intelligentsia, referring to that group of people which serve society and first and foremost, the ruling class, providing it with brain workers, that is, its ideologists, uh, ideologists and technicians. Ideology and technology, first of all, how to, be, how to be adapted to the general economic growth of mankind and how and had to re, uh, reflect rather quickly the changes taking place in the economy, and secondly, they possess their own internal force of development. So it's also important to understand that the whole goal was that um, you know, basically, once people or once these children, you know, graduate from, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, whatever else, and they go off to um, college, the role of college would actually be to, you know, manufacture technology and intelligentsia, like for the ruling class. It's their job was literally to serve the ruling class. Now, this may be just me. But from what I can tell, um, that is currently going on here in the United States. So, anyways, next I'm going to read um, from Vodka, the Church, and the Cinema by Leon Trotsky. So, the longing for amusement, distraction, sightseeing, and laughter is the most legitimate 
desire of human nature. We are able and indeed obliged to give the satisfaction of this desire a higher artistic quality, at the same time making amusement a weapon of collective education, freed from the guardianship of the pedagogy and the tiresome habit of moralizing. The most important weapon in this respect, a weapon excelling any other, is at present the cinema. The fact that we have so far, in nearly six years, not taken possession of the cinema so, uh, shows how slow and uneducated we are, not to say frankly stupid. This weapon, which cries out to be used, is the best instrument for propaganda, technical, educational, and industrial propaganda, propaganda against alcohol, propaganda for sanitation. Again, hygienic literacy, sanitation. Basically, if you don't comply with the state, then your loyalty remains first and foremost to the state. So you are duly obligated to go to the state, let them know what's going on, and they will remove that person from your family and throw them in the gulag, essentially. So, political propaganda, any kind of propaganda you please. A propaganda which is accessible to everyone, which is attractive, which cuts into the memory and be made and may be made a possible source of revenue. The cinema competes not only with the tavern, but also with the church, and this rivalry may become fatal for the church if we make up for the separation of the church from the socialist state by the fusion of the socialist state and the cinema. Religiousness among the Russian working class practically does not exist. It actually never existed. In order to liberate common masses from ritual, uh, from ritual and the ecclesiasticism required by habit, anti-religious propaganda alone is not enough. Of course, it is necessary, but its direct practical influence is limited to a small minority of the more courageous in spirit. The bulk of the people are not affected by anti-religious propaganda, but that is not because their spiritual relation to religion is so profound. On the contrary, there is no spiritual relation at all. There is only a formless, inert, mechanical relation which has not passed through consciousness. A relation like that of a street sightseer, who on occasion does not object to joining in a procession or a pompous ceremony or listening to singing or waving his arms. Meaningless ritual, which lies on the consciousness like an inert burden, cannot be destroyed by criticism alone. It can be supplanted by new forms of life, new amusements, and new, more cultured theaters. Here again, thoughts go naturally to the most powerful, because it is the most democratic instrument of, uh, instrument of the theater, the cinema. Having no need of a clergy and brocade, etc. The cinema unfolds on the white screen the spectacular images of greater grip than are provided by the richest church, grown wise in the experience of a thousand years or by a mosque or synagogue. synagogue. In the church, only one drama is performed, and always the same, year in, year out, while the cinema next door will, uh, will be shown the Easters of heathen, Jew, and Christian in their historic sequence with their similarity of ritual. The cinema amuses, educates, strikes the imagination by images, and liberates you from the need of crossing the church door. The cinema is a great competitor, not only of the tavern, but also the church. Here is an instrument we must secure at all costs. So, that is um, the excerpts from Bolshevik Visions. And I just want you to think about those things and perhaps relate them, you know, to what you might see going on here in the United States right now, mm. both objectively and subjectively, because obviously people have differing opinions on it, so. And different experiences as well, and I have mm -hmm. my own. But anyways, um, this brings us to absolute truth, because, you know, I honestly think that, you know, 
I actually don't disagree with, you know, uh, Lunacharsky or, um, you know, Trotsky or Troy or Marx or anyone. Like, if people were somehow able to comply, right, and actually able to submit themselves to this sort of thing, I think that a productive society would actually exist. It's just the fact that people don't that causes it to not work. But that doesn't mean that we need to put a gun to your head and say, hey, you have to do this, right? That's not what essentially freedom or reason determines would be necessarily morally right, at least mm -hmm. from where I come from and at least in terms of my opinion. So anyways, this is an excerpt from uh, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. So the honest human spirit may continually fail in its attempts to bring about paradise on earth. It may manage, however, to reduce the suffering attendant on existence to bearable levels. The tragedy of being is the consequence of our limitations and the vulnerability defining uh, human experience. It may even be the price we pay for being itself, since existence must be limited to be at all. I've seen a husband adapt honestly and courageously while his wife descended into terminal dementia. He made the necessary adjustments step by step. He accepted when he needed it. He accepted help when he needed it. He refused to deny, to, to deny her sad deterioration and in that manner adapted gracefully to it. I saw the man of that same woman come together, or I saw the family of that same woman come together in a supporting and sustaining manner as she lay dying and gain a newfound connection with each other, brother, sister, grandchildren, and father, as partial but genuine compensation for their loss. I've seen my teenage daughter live through the destruction of her hip and her ankle and survive two years of continual intense pain and emerge with her spirit intact. I watched her younger brother voluntarily and without uh, resentment sacrifice many opportunities for friendship and social engagement to stand by us and her while she suffered. With love, encouragement, and character intact, a human being can be resilient beyond imagining. What cannot be born, however, is the absolute ruin produced by tragedy and deception. So I'm going to keep reading this, but I just want to point out, you know, um, recently, as I said earlier, um, you know, my, uh, my grandmother passed away, but we also, you know, gained something, even though we lost hers, we gained new connections with people that, you know, I had either never met before, you know, one of my great uncles or had not seen since I was like three or four years old, you know, my, some of my great aunts. So and also I got to see, you know, my cousins and everyone else and, you know, kind of renew that relationship when we were able to all um, be there for each other and support one another. And, mm -hmm. of course, you know, all families are going to have their, like, little stupid quarrels and everything. But that was a very, very small, you know, part of the trip in comparison. We mm -hmm. were all there for each other and we were all there together. Yes, in part compensation for our loss. So this is where it comes to truth. Okay, in terms of absolute truth. The capacity of the rational mind to deceive, manipulate, scheme, trick, falsify, minimize, mislead, betray, prevaricate, deny, omit, rationalize, bias, exaggerate, and obscure is so endless, so remarkable, that centuries of pre-scientific thought concentrating on clarifying the nature of moral endeavor regarded it as positively demonic. This is not because of rationality itself as a process. That process can produce clarity and progress. It is because rationality is subject to the single worst temptation to raise what it knows now to the status of an absolute. 
we can turn to the great poet John Milton once again to clarify just what this means. Over thousands of years of history, the Western world wrapped a dreamlike fantasy around the nature of evil around a central religious core. That fantasy had a protagonist, an adversarial personality, absolutely dedicated to the corruption of being. Milton took it upon himself to organize, dramatize, and articulate the essence of this collective dream and gave it, uh, gave it in the figure of Satan, Lucifer, the light bearer. He writes of Lucifer's primal temptation and its immediate consequences. So this is his uh, poem, or John Milton's poem. He trusted to have equaled the Most High, if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle, battle proud, with vain attempt. Him the almighty power hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition there to dwell, in adamantine chains and penal fire. Lucifer, in Milton's eyes, the spirit of reason was the most wondrous angel brought forth from the void by God. This can be read psychologically. Reason is something alive. It lives in all of us. It's older than any of us. It's best understood as a personality, not a faculty. It has its aims and its temptations and its weaknesses. It flies higher and sees higher, it sees farther than any other spirit. But reason falls in love with itself. And worse, it falls in love with its own productions. It elevates them and worships them as absolutes. Lucifer is, therefore, the spirit of totality totalitarianism. He is flung from heaven into hell because such elevation, such rebellion against the highest and incomprehensible, inevitably produces hell. To say it again, it is the greatest temptation of the rational faculty to glorify its own capacity and its own productions and to claim that in the face of its theories nothing transcendent or outside its domain need exist. This means that all important facts have been discovered. This means that nothing important remains to be known. But most importantly, it means denial of the necessity for courageous individual confrontation with being. What is going to save you? The totalitarian says, in essence, you must rely on faith in what you already know. But that is not what saves. What saves is the willingness to learn from what you don't. That is faith in the possibility of human transformation. That is faith in the sacrifice of the current self for the self that could be. The totalitarian denies the necessity for the individual responsibility to take ultimate responsibility for being. So, hmm. that is an excerpt from Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. And again, you know, I don't agree with everything that he just said, um, but I definitely do agree that I think it's dangerous to elevate anything that we can possibly rationalize or think about to elevate them to an absolute because mm -hmm. we humans are limited so if we raise anything that we know or at least think we know to an absolute it will destroy us essentially so that means that you know your axiom or whatever else you're basing your life on can actually shift and change as you go about life. But you have to be willing to allow things to change you. And you have to be willing and open open to truth. And you have to be willingly vulnerable to allow your bullshit detector to go off like crazy. 
and you have to be able to pursue things that you don't agree with in, in order to find some sort of sense of truth, or at least, at the very minimum, okay, make common. So. Mm. <laughs> very, very compelling. I think there's so much, so much in what Jordan Peterson had Jordan Peterson has to say that I see as a parallel to pride Mm -hmm. is that you could know a right thing, but you know the right thing in one viewpoint. And if you saying that you, what you're seeing, the way that you see it is truth, then you've lost truth entirely. Right. Which that's a really interesting thought process um and i think that's even for everybody is that even if you know a right thing be open and, and willing to say what if i can see this thing in a new way yeah and that is a part of the journey forward into growing into the maturing of us humans i think that's that is a beautiful picture of something that we have to be wary of but at the same time mm-hmm. um again, gives us permission to keep seeking and moving forward. Right. And this doesn't mean that, like, you know, you have to be indecisive about how you go about your life. That that's not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, rationality as a process is meant to illuminate, but you don't get there by elevating what you learn to the status of an absolute. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's more of like, essentially trial and error and allowing yourself to you know scrape your knee get up dust off and try again Mm -hmm. you know that sort of thing and so you know it's basically once you have found an axiom you can live with that axiom you know for a while and you can be successful you know with that axiom but the moment that it comes crumbling down he also like jordan peterson also uh describes religion like or you know the these axioms but, you know, generally they're in the form of different religions or whatever else mm-hmm. as boats. And as soon as you are aware that your boat can sink because your original boat sunk, the axiom that you lived on, so many people decide to just, you know, flail out in the middle of the water instead of, you know, reaching out and finding another boat to hop on. Right. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you do that, you end up drowning instead of, you know, finding another boat or even better, finding solid land. You know, Mm -hmm. so because eventually one boat will take you to the solid land. That is an absolute truth. But, you know, yeah, keep going. Yeah. I was like, eventually you'll find that solid boat that will take you to dry land. But you have to be willing to be vulnerable and to, you know, accept help from different people and to essentially try out, you know, whenever you're flailing in the water you know, let a, let a boat come and, you know, get you, essentially. Mm-hmm. Let an outreached um, hand uh, yeah. stretch out to you and and you'll be able to hold on to it. Right. And this doesn't mean, like, you know, just... I'm more talking about this in terms of axioms and mm-hmm. um, the way in which we um, work in the world and less, you know, religion in particular, if that makes sense. That sh- It so. sure does. And I think what even like leading into kind of the end that we have here is that I think what is in the Bolsheviks um, and some of that writing is it's so interesting is how important narrative is. 
Yeah. Whether it's an agenda pushed by someone or if it's a narrative in the pursuit of truth mm -hmm. is that something that captures our hearts is not raw facts and being able to see things certain ways. What it is, it's a journey of pursuit that we all long for. Mm -hmm. And to be able to move to something with, with eagerness, learning, with anticipation. Um, and I think, again, used incorrectly could be used for man manipulation, like they were describing in... And it has throughout history. Yeah, I mean, it's just because our hearts long for something to chase and a narrative to be a part of. And so I think that's maybe the journey that maybe we can leave everybody with you with is what narrative are you going to be searching? Mm -hmm. um, again, I hope for a fact that, that many of you, when you get done listening to this, that you want to pursue and look for how this world works, how the reality that we're living in, this, this beautiful arena of earth that we're living in, like to pursue what is true, not just mm -hmm. about this earth, but even about who we are as humans and also the bigger picture on what's going on in not just our lives, but even in the story of the world. And find, find truth and move forward in glee and happiness like a young child wanting to discover and move into, even though that we're in adult bodies, we truly are children. Right. Um, it's just a matter of perspective. And especially, especially in, in the, uh, even just the timeline of Earth, we're very, very, we live very, very young lives. Mm-hmm. And so uh, before we wrap up, which we're about to, I'll just leave everyone with this little tidbit that I, um, you know, that I think about on a daily and remind myself of. And it's something mm -hmm. that I kind of live by. It's that because being itself is limited, you can, well, you can, but you can't choose not to be enslaved. You can only choose a master. And if you choose not to be enslaved, then you'll become a slave to yourself. Hmm. Well, got any we last leave, closing uh, closing remarks, Tate? Well, no. I've got honestly a little a little poem by an artist that Ooh, really yes, does. Um, again, it does leave us pondering and wanting us to move forward in a childlike manner. And I love love this little song, and so. I'll read the lyrics to you and then we'll, we'll sign out. Um, this is Through the Eyes of a Child by Aurora. The world is covered by our trails, scars we cover up with paint. Watch them preach in our sour lies. I would rather see this world through the eyes of a child. Darker times will come and go, times you need to see her smile. A mother's hearts are warm and mild. I would rather feel this world through the skin of a child. When a human strokes your skin, that is when you let them in. So let them in before they go. For I would rather feel awake with the eyes and a childlike soul.